Hello friends, welcome to Fangirl Happy Hour, Shanama edition. This isn't actually an episode of Fangirl Happy Hour, but we're loaning our feed to Kate Elliott and Tessa Grattan, who wanted to continue their discussion of the Shanama, the Persian Book of Kings, face-to-face at Mid-American. We're happy to bring you their fascinating discussions of good guys, mediocre guys, 800-year-old guys, cool ladies, and super smart horses. I apologize for the sound quality. My microphone did not like this hotel room, and it did not know what sounds to pick up and basically went bonkers. It's normally such a good mic, so I think we can forgive it. My advice is to not listen to this at top volume, because there's sporadic wrestling that's like a Nickelodeon guts-level eardrum challenge. Please practice self-care. Long-term listeners of the podcast will know Kate Elliott already, author of the recently released Poison Blade, as well as my personal favorite, Black Wolves. Tessa Gretton is a YA author and all-around cool lady who wrote the United States of Asgard series and is the author of the forthcoming 2018 title from Tor, The Queens of Ines Lear. It was super neat to get to hear these intelligent women have a fun conversation. You can follow more of their Shanama adventures at Kate Elliott's blog, imakeupworlds.com. New listeners and old, we hope you enjoy. Happy listening. Hi there, this is Kate Elliott. And I'm Tessa Gratton. And we're, we come to you today as part of our Shah Nama read-along series um, back in what month? Well, we started in January. So did we really? We did. We started almost right on time. So we must have been talking about it in December or the very beginning of January. So we be- decided to read the Persian Book of Kings, called, also called the Shanama, by Abdul Qasem Ferdowsi. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Written a thousand years ago. It's a prose, trans, not translation, but a transposition, a prose yes. rendering of a prose book of kings and i will let tessa explain what a book of kings is it is exactly what it sounds like the best kind of definition um it is a history uh, of kings both mythological and historical i'm not exactly sure if there is a specific time period that it starts other than the far distant past i know that the first clearly historically attested person besides Sikander or Alexander. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're right. just coming up to his part. And, and then right before that, right at the end of the part we're reading now, there's a description of Bahman, who is also mm-hmm. called Ardashir. Mm-hmm. And then he has a son named Sasan. Yes. And he's going to be the founder of the Sasanian Sasanian yes. dynasty, which is the dynasty that Alexander the Great conquered. So this is our first entry into historicity that we know of. I think everything yeah. else is legendary. And we're solid halfway through the book at this point. So everything, though the last, I would say maybe the last 100, 150 pages have been about a very specific family, even though I guess supposedly it's been like 600 years because they live and rule for very long, grandiose amounts of time. We only occasionally get hints from the text like one of the kings will say, well, I've been a king now for 120 years. It's time for me to die. And then, you know, like Zhao, who is in this episode, yay, he's got to be at least 800 years old. At, at least, least. At least. And yet he's never or almost never described as being old compared to some of these kings who 
are old and wasting away because it's their time to die. Well, he describes himself as old right. and gray-haired and even perhaps a bent cypress. The cypress tree is constantly used right. as an allusion to someone who's tall and strong. Right. But and never in a way where I get the impression that he is about to die or he feels he's about to die already even. No. And in fact, as we're going to come to when we discuss this week's episode, <laughs> a long-awaited episode by the two of us, um, this is the first time he's ever talked about being ready to be done with the world. Right. And that is because we're first introduced to Zal when he he hears about this beautiful woman named Rudava, and she hears about him, and they arrange to do the thing together and sneak in and see each other secretly, and then they're married. There's actual balcony climbing in it, which I remember he climbs up. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. And, illicit, and, and illicit unmarried sex that no one cares about. Right, all over the place. All over the place in this, which completely blew out the stereotypes yeah. that I have. Very frequently initiated by the woman, too. Who's living in the woman's part of the mm-hmm. palace. That and, and I just wanted to add to that, besides the fact that the women are assertive sexually and that no one takes them to task for it, the young, we would say, virginal daughters, right. but they don't care, um, and that they go after the men. You also, yeah. there's frequent re- references to women possessing an own and managing their own wealth. Did you notice uh, Rudava's in when she gives all her riches to the poor uh, after Rossum dies? Um, it actually is called her secret wealth in, in this right. section. Like we've had references to their riches and their own property, but I think this is the first time it was called secret wealth. But then, of course, there was no further discussion of what that means or if it's different from her other wealth or if it's all secret. Like, I wondered, is this something besides actual jewels? Like, what makes it secret? But there's I, yeah, I don't, here. I don't know. That's, yeah. that's true. And maybe and that's the thing about reading a book in translation when you A, don't right. know the language, right. and when you B, don't know. I mean, I have read things about Iran and the mm-hmm. history of Persia and Iran, but I don't really know that much, and right. we're certainly not taught much right. uh, in our culture. Not at all. And, and furthermore, we're kind of anti-taught it. Exactly. Because we, we need to see Iran as, as an enemy when, in fact, it's one of the great civilizations of the world. So I wouldn't know contextually right. how to understand that. And I, but I feel like the intended audience of this would have known. Yeah. It definitely wouldn't yeah. have made them, oh, secret wealth, what is that? It's such a, I I don't like to say throwaway line because that makes it seem unimportant, but um, it's not highlighted by the the narrative. If the translation is doing its job, which of course we can't know, Ferdowsi being a poet would have been careful about what adjectives he chose and and would have wanted those adjectives would probably have done double duty. Mm -hmm. So we have, so we we, we open up with the the development of kings, the first king who develops technology and clothing and weapons and they fight the demons. And Zal and Rudaba have a son named Rostam, and he is the big hero of the Book of Kings. And I have heard about him. I knew about mm-hmm. him. He was the only character that I had any previous knowledge of when we came to, like, other than Alexander and some of the later historical, but of the mythological figures, Rostam was the only one that I was remotely familiar with. And he's the golden boy of this book and also of that whole legendary um, understanding or of, of this story. Right. So when he was finally born and introduced and raised, I was expecting great yes. things. And yet what happened was... He was mean to his horse. <laughs> I, literally, that is the point where I yes. said, whoa, what is yes. this? It was. It's one of the very first, it's not the first, because his adventure, I think the very the first 
episode that is all about him is where he actually acquires his horse. Raksha's great. Yes. And Raksha also seems to live 600 years. Yes. But but whatever. Well, he dies with Rostam, so. Well, exactly. But yeah, but so it was, so I was all fine with all Mm -hmm. of that until the episode, which I can't remember which one it was, in which he's mean to the horse. Yeah. Right away. And just doesn't trust the horse. It reminded me of kind of the fairy tale relationship where you have, you know, the prince or hero who doesn't listen to the helpful bird or whatever helpful animal has come. And then by the end has learned to regret that. Except Rostam never really seems to learn anything. He never learns. Yeah, he doesn't listen to his much wiser than him horse repeatedly. And actually, that was my favorite moment of narrative symmetry in this episode, The Death of Rostam, is when he's going through... So the... Can I jump to... Well, yeah, so so, so we have hundreds right. of pages of, of right. Rostam's adventures and these amazing things he does and then other stories like that. And he comes in and out he comes of in the other stories. stories. And I do think it's interesting that he's not one of the kings and is never, uh, never even has the ambition to be one of the yes, kings. ever, because that's not yeah. his role. Right. And considering this is the Book of Kings and he's the most famous, at least most well-known to us, I expected him to be much more... I guess I expected that conflict, which is certainly my training. Maybe more of a Western right. conflict, mm-hmm. the idea that the best person for the job right. would take it. But here, the impression I've got is that the conflict for him, not whether he'll become king, but how mm-hmm. he can serve both a bad king and a good king. Right. And that he has to. That's his mm-hmm. role in life. Yeah. So now, so having gone through all these adventures and, right. and discovering that Rostam is kind of a dick. Right, and he continually wins, even though he doesn't seem any better or more wise or more glorious or strong or anything than some of these other heroes or villains, I suppose, that he goes up against. It's been very frustrating for me to not actually understand what makes Rostam the hero, except for that fact that he never tries to be king. Like, he doesn't That's seem the, yeah. to... And he never- he doesn't want to get out of out of place. Yes, but sometimes he doesn't lose for very. I mean, like he doesn't lose against. Um, Saram, his son. Oh, the, the one Esfandiar. Is oh, Esfandiar. He doesn't yeah. learn, He doesn't lose against him because of Zal, his dad, the magician yeah. Yeah. who goes and finds Esfandiar's weakness. Right. So that. It's good for him that he has such great dad. And he does. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is, is I, for, for I think both of us, the story of Seavash, who is the son, uh, one of the sons of Kavros, who's the bad king or the unwise king. Repeatedly unwise who is king. Who is raised, fostered mm-hmm. by Rostam, who had done, whose actual son, Sorab, who dies tragically by his, the hand mm-hmm. of his own father by Rostam's hand because they just can't bother to talk to each other. Right. But Seavash, to me, is like... And we both cried many tears over him because he was like the big hero to me. Mm -hmm. And yet he's not positioned as the big hero. I wonder if that has to do with his position in the narrative as a potential king. You know, because he, you know, Rostam and Zal and all of the characters repeatedly speak of Seavash as though he is or was the ultimate warrior. You know, that so within the narrative, I do think that he probably would have would be considered Rostam's equal as a hero. And then of course because he was 
in the line to potentially rule, that would have raised whether he had the FAR. FAR is a, the term for, can you explain it? Uh, it is the quality necessary to be the king of Persia. And it's sort of like the glory of God. It's a, like God bestows FAR and God can take it away. And it's a little bit uncertain exactly what behavior can and can't live in conjunction with FAR, but some things you do, like if you become too selfish and you stop paying attention to the good of your people, that will definitely make you lose the FAR. But Kay Cosro has it presumably the whole time he's king. Okay, or oh, Kavos. Kavos, yeah, yes. Kavos. And he makes mistake after mistake, and he's, and like, what I would have expected, like, the mistakes that would have made him lose the far, like, when he is overly ambitious and overly selfish and ignores all of the advice from very wise people, and he never loses it, even though he does, definitely doesn't care about the good of Persia. When he makes sources, like when he goes against the demons, he decides to invade the demon yeah, country. Just because he's whatever. Right, he and wants. he knows it's a bad idea. He basically is like, yes, this will get lots of people killed. No one likes it, but I'm going to do it because it will make me look great. And if I can defeat the demons, then I'll be the greatest king ever. I, I just, I, I'm sorry, I could not yeah. get over how over and over again he was displayed as making bad judgment. Yeah. Bad calls. People would give him advice. He would ignore it. And yet he got to remain king. Yeah. He kept getting forgiven. Right. In a Even sense. after the sky Narrative. thing. It, every, like he made, he, he invents a chariot, I guess, that flies. It's, a, it's an airplane. He basically invents a flying <laughs> contraption and because he wants to get to heaven. He wants to, while he's living, go where God is and where only... Right. as the Greeks would say. Yes, and of course it crashes, but he doesn't die, and everybody just kind of pats him on the head and is like, you're the worst, but get back on the throne. And Rostam keeps coming when he calls and, and serving him. And so this goes mm -hmm. on for many, many episodes with some uh, right. tangents into other people's stories and a few romances, and then, and then yes. after hundreds of years... Of Rostam, I guess, you know, I, I actually, as you were saying that, that does, like, in the grand scheme of things, and upon reflection, now that I'm done reading about Rostam, so, I can feel slightly more positive <laughs> toward him. You know, he does always come when he's called. When that's one right. of the Persian kings says, we need you to uh, raise this prince, we need you to go into certain danger and possible death, and rescue these people or lead the armies to war, he always does it. And he doesn't even complain very much. I don't like, think he ever complains. Yeah. And if he does, it's, yeah, it, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm sure I'm just thinking about him being mean to his horse again. But right. that's the kind of thing yeah. that, like, that is a difference between him and Esfandiar, who does what he's told. You know, he that's his big conflict is he knows what his father is telling him to do. He's also an heir wrong. to the throne. Right, he's an heir to the throne and it's wrong, but he does what his dad is supposed or what his dad tells him to do, but he he does complain about it and he sends obnoxious letters back to his dad. And so maybe that is what does ultimately set Ross apart is he it does serve. He's you know, the, he he's the proper serves. he's a loyal yeah. servant. Mm -hmm. And so that is 
what is being raised up by the narrative itself more than even someone like Sayavash, who is perfect. I'm never going to stop crying over him. I was, uh, well, this is totally relevant. Never mind. Oh, go ahead. Well, um, on one of my panels today, Marianne Mohanraj was talking about Sita from the uh, Rama Sita epic story, having to prove herself by going through fire. And I completely sidetracked. I'm sitting on the panel with her. And for like two solid minutes, I stopped paying attention to the panel because I was being so oh, yes, sad about yes. the day of when he has to walk of the through fire, the fire. It instantly yeah. just put me back there and I was like, oh, say oh, come back to us. But so we finally got to the episode of Rossum's death. Which we've been waiting for for a while. Yes. And, and, I, and I'm sad to say that, but anyway. He's just very tiresome. And, and I feel bad. I feel like I'm not getting the essential yes. thing because I'm not Persian and I didn't grow up with this. But, you know, I just didn't like Rostam that much. No, and that's the reality. very unlikable, which is fine, but... Because compare him to Zal or Sayabash right. or exactly. even many of them, or Puran, you mm-hmm. know, where these names won't mean anything to people right. who haven't read it. But these are, there are plenty of people yes. and plenty of men who do great deeds who don't, who come across as very likable and sympathetic. Mm-hmm. But not yeah. for me, not awesome. For no, you, not, not at all. Awesome. Not remotely. My favorite moment of this episode was the beautiful narrative symmetry of the trap that is set for Rostam. Um, well, we should briefly yes. explain. So, so Zal, Rostam's father, yes. has clearly very late in life um, a son by one of his and the many women in his household. And, and this is this is shown periodically mm-hmm. that a man who is a prince or a king will have multiple women mm-hmm. in his household some of whom are, there'll be usually one wife and then several women who are essentially Mm -hmm. concubines. And then the sons they have with them, and this is kind of interesting Mm -hmm. to me, may or may not, the chief wife's son may or may not become king. And it may be one of these other lesser, not lesser in terms of status, wives or concubines, sons who may become king, depending on who has far. So he has a son by a woman who's a, Actually, musician and storyteller. And I was storyteller. really that's the very first line of this episode. That's right. Is it Zal had a slave who was a storyteller and musician? And and do they, it's not, do they say she's a brilliant one I or a good so. one or something? I, it, it made me so excited. And then she, yeah, and then she, so and we never the line, Zal had a female slave who was a musician and storyteller. And then it moves on to the sun whose beauty eclipsed the moon. Oh, and he resembles Sam. Right, the, the great-grandfather. Right, Zal's father. So that son is fostered elsewhere, and then the seeds, mm-hmm. and he, he's a glib, charming child, but it turns out he's bad to the bone. Yeah. And he ends up deciding that he hates Rostam and that he wants mm-hmm. to kill Rostam. Right. And so he and the king of Kabul, is that? Yeah, that's the, Kabul. Kabul. I mean, modern mm-hmm. Kabul, but it's called Kabul. Yeah. In that they come up with this plan to lure Rostam out on a hunting trip where they have dug pits and then lines the bottom of the pits with swords and spears and all kinds of terrible things. And it's working. And I was thinking, oh, wow, is surely this isn't going to work. Surely it's going to be, it's going to take more effort. And sure enough, the wonderful, loyal, wise horse hesitates because he can smell or sense that the ground isn't quite quite right and so he pauses 
in front of the pit. And I was like, oh my gosh, this horse is going to save him. But oh no, oh no, no. Rostam is like, it's not like I should have been trusting this horse for the last 600 years who saved my life repeatedly. I'm going to get out my whip and be like, come on, horse, let's go. And so he gently, it says something about very gently, whips his horse. And so the horse falls into the pit and Rostam. And they're both, both of them are skewered. Yes. It was amazing. (laughs) So there's, there were two things for me. One was that it does kind of reflect the ignoble death um, of Sayavash, who Mm -hmm. who dies. He's just executed in the most horrible, demeaning way, which is shocking because he's such a wonderful character. And so this was a very, very demeaning way to die. He definitely doesn't get to die in battle. Which is very, Yeah. yeah. So if he'd been ill. Able to die in battle, that would have been something. But this is like the, you know, like you would yeah, kill he's a dying criminal, at the bottom of a you know. And but then the contrast with that and the fact that his, the horse would have saved him right. if he had just listened. Like his very first lesson that he should have learned when he was a sixteen-year-old boy was trust this horse. But no, and then he doesn't, and it, it's like it's his fatal flaw is that he is mean to his horse. Do you think? I mean, because I have no idea, but do you think that for Dowsey? means to bookend those two at two events. I have a hard time imagining that there isn't intention there. Somehow, whether or not there is supposed to be a lesson or not, I, I'm less certain. And I think that's because I can't really know what was important like about, like from a cultural well, exactly. level, the same way I don't exactly. really know what secret exactly. wealth means or the fact that they use yeah. a cow of the, the sacrifice of the cow to start this whole um, this. Uh, oh, that's right. Uh, Rossum's brother, his name Shagad, um, who the, sets the, the this evil trap, brother. Because the there's another brother. Because there's another right. brother who who, who, who dies with him Rostam, in the pit. Yeah, yeah. Pit, yeah. They use this very tiny sacrifice of a cow skin. Like the king of Kabul is supposed to give the cow sacrifice cow skin to. I can't remember if it's to the Persian king or to Zal and Rostam. And that's how the evil brother convinces the king of Kabul that Rostam is worth killing. That's right. And so it's this tiny little thing. I mean, it's really hard to, as a motivation, to kill the greatest warrior that Persia has ever known. So I kind of feel like I'm in the same position where I don't really know if the horse playing such an important role as a bookend matters culturally or just narratively because it definitely matters narratively it definitely matters and this is such a complicated amazing work i'm sure that it was purposeful on the narrative level the book ended that way well and if it came too from the prose i would assume that whoever had written the prose work which was evidently very well known at the time and was at least decades old not more and that the fact that he thought it was worthwhile to turn it into poetry means that the prose original was itself a unified work. Mm-hmm. Or, well, there's some controversy about that, but that seems to be fairly standard. And and again, as, as you pointed out, you know, I can only come at this from my own perspective, which right. is one of ignorance, mm-hmm. really. And so I can't help but make judgments about how the narrative goes through mm-hmm. my whole Western lens right. with... While at the same time having to step back and say, listen, it's going to be judged in a whole different way by the people who were living at that time, Mm -hmm. by the people who read it later, because it's become, it's embedded in Persian culture Mm -hmm. as one of the, as one of the foundational texts of Persian culture. And it should frankly be a foundational text of world literature. It should be. It's amazing. 
I'm really glad to be reading it with less context because I've done a little bit of historical research like you have as well about the history of Iran, but I haven't studied it in depth at all, ever. And one of the reasons I I was really glad about the timing of this project Mm -hmm. is because I'm about to start doing more historical research. And I wanted to read this without too much cultural context, because that really helps me pinpoint a lot of my weak spots, like the things, little things that I don't understand that I write down and be like, okay, this is a cultural thing that I don't understand because of my Western epic narrative training and cultural training, like on both levels. Some of the structure is very alien to me. And then some of these little cultural things, and it helps me find these places where I know I need to dig in more to my own research if I'm going to try and build any kind of framework for the stories that I I'm interested in telling from this. I mean, I I can't really say yet because I'm in such the baby. Oh, you're spaces. in the baby phase. Yeah, yeah, that um, that that, that inchoate. Right. Said there were nine. That's my favorite <laughs> word, but I don't have to pronounce yeah. it right. Right, and so I like finding this. Well, oh, so this is what you can actually start a huge feud on this tiny little thing. So I need to make a note about this kind of feud building and conflict. Yeah. The orientation of conflict yeah, yeah. and where it can come from and motivation. Yes, and yes, like because the way these conflicts rise up is a little different than mm-hmm. what I'm used to and the, the reasons for them, which are seen as completely reasonable. And yes. why wouldn't they be? Right, right. They but they're different well, from, what, yes. yeah, from what we're trained mm-hmm. to see. The other thing I like about reading it with less context is I feel like once we've finished it, and we will finish it by the yes. end of the year, when I go to start mm-hmm. reading Iranian history or, or anything about Iranian culture, they're going to start referencing things from this. And I now yeah. know those reference points, mm-hmm. and I know what those episodes are. So I feel like there's a little bit of literacy that mm-hmm. I've gained, yet a little tiny bit more of mm-hmm. global literacy, yeah. like as I did when I my daughter was taking a class in vernacular Chinese literature, mm-hmm. and she asked me to read The Dream of the Red Chamber with her. At first, I was a little like, oh, that's really long, and it's probably like worthy and kind of boring, but it turned out it wasn't boring at all. <laughs> and now, it's like a little piece of extra literacy that mm-hmm. I have. It makes me feel like I have a bigger view of yes. the world, and this is doing the same thing. Absolutely. So I will say one thing that to my surprise, I kind of felt a little bad for Rostam when he died because (laughs) it was kind of a terrible way to go, which I'm sure was the point. Right. And then I was kind of glad when he shot his arrow and threw the tree and skewered his. Yes, that was very impressive. And I felt bad for his brother, who's barely a secondary character and who just got trapped with him because they're buddies and he had to go along with him. And so I was surprised that I felt kind of bad for him to go like that. I think I would have been happier if he could have gone in battle. I mean, in, in other words, I would have said, yeah, finally someone beat you. But this was just like... I have very complicated feelings about it, partly just because I'm very, on a personal level, glad that we're moving on. Well, yeah, I'm very glad. Right. We're and on. so mostly I'm just happy that he died finally. And it was, it was very epic, though, not in the rising up kind of way or a heroic death. But, you know, I feel bad about the situation. I was very sympathetic to the entire situation. And not just because I remain very invested in Zal and Radaba, which, which I, I do. do. You, right. I do. Yeah. 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 Because they have the best love story. And we have to talk about her madness. Um, They call it that. That little tiny episode of madness. 
which was so shocking to me. So Rosslyn dies, and his mother, when she hears about it, she is, of course, completely overwhelmed with terrible grief, and she says something to the effect of, this is the worst thing that anyone can feel ever. And Zal, who is also grieving and so sad, is like, well, that is the dumbest thing that you could have said because starving people suffer much more than we're suffering right now. And it was such a it, little, but hang on a second. Yeah. Rostam is dead and he, the world is mourning and it's terrible. And it's and, her son. Right. And it was just such a shocking thing. And so then she goes on to, she's like, fine, I'm not going to eat because I'm in such grief and nothing can be worse than this. And she uh, doesn't eat for a week and is delirious with hunger and thirst and um, goes into the kitchens and sees a dead snake and picks it up and almost eats it. And that's like her handmaidens are like, nope, that's it. She almost ate a dead snake. We're going to put her in bed and make her eat. And in the morning, she wakes up and her senses have returned to her because she's had something to eat. And she looks at Zal and is like, you know what? You're right. It was way worse when I was starving than this grief I'm feeling right now. And then they go on to grieve more. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there that, A, I'm interested because women are not very often Mm -hmm. dealt with and and they are, they don't speak that much Mm -hmm. in this epic, but when they do, it's fascinating and they never speak in a passive way. They always speak in a powerful way when they are allowed to speak. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was interesting. And also I felt like I was just missing something in terms of what mourning, the mourning process Mm -hmm. was culturally. It definitely seemed like we were supposed to have background information. Like that is a famous saying or something like that. Oh, right, maybe. right, right. So they're maybe just a dealing with it. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then she gives away her secret wealth. To and I was poor. distracted by To that. the poor right. who right. may be starving. Mm-hmm. So they won't be suffering as she would right. suffer. So it's like a circle. Is there anything else we want to say? About this, besides the fact that I I just love that we're doing it. Me too. I did actually want to talk about Zal again. That's okay. I'm always always. always good with Zal. Just if you read nothing else, read the story of Zal and Rudaba. Rudaba, Rudaba. Because it is completely charming. Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, so Zal is a magician. And he is also a warrior. I mean, he goes to war and he fights And is clearly good enough at it that he doesn't die. But he... Because he was raised by a magical bird. Right. Very important to note, raised by a magical bird who he continues to have a relationship with. Um, And I assume taught him to use magic. I I, I have to assume so, because you would think a magical bird would be magic and be able to pass that Nobody else around him used magic, so... There there, there is very... Yeah, there's not... I mean, there's demons in this, which we're not sure right. whether they are they demons or are they humans who act badly. Right. And, and actually, I think there's examples of both. Mm-hmm. The illustrations of the white demon, who's a character who appears much earlier, actually show them as having a demonic right. face. Whereas in other cases, demons just simply seem to be people who right. don't act right or whose king doesn't have power. And the land of demons was clearly populated with humans, yeah. but they were they were magicians and witches, and so they had a relationship yes, with magic. Did. Yes. Um, so is magic, does that express things that are disorderly, right. you know, that, that, that aren't fixed and manageable? Mm-hmm. Like, far to me, to some extent, is like orderly. We follow right. these rules, and we 
have I I mean that's just me projecting perhaps mm-hmm. but anyway yeah well so. but so I I thought it was very interesting that so the beginning of this when uh, the evil brother Shaghad is born Zal has his stars read which has been oh, the downfall right. of right. almost every prince for the definitely the last several chapters we've read yeah. you hear their kids fate and it's everybody makes bad choices and I thought it was really very important that all Val does is pray. He doesn't make any plans. He doesn't say, okay, well, I'm going to do this to try and subvert it, or I'm going to do this because I know I can't subvert it. All he does is pray. He turns to God and he says, well, this is not great. Um, I'm really sorry about this, but I put it in your hands. And, and yeah, we see this over and over again. Right. People's fates are red mm-hmm. and people say, oh man, that sucks. This person is going to bring down this whole kingdom. Oh, well. Right. Well, we'll send him to be fostered by some king over there. Who, and, uh, you know, who is destined to kill him. Yeah. Or I'm going to set up it. I mean, it's just. It's, 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 a, different, so it's a different understanding of, I don't want to say predestiny or mm-hmm. fate, but anyway, of those things about mm-hmm. that. So Zal, unlike Rostam and unlike basically all of the kings, he doesn't brag about himself. It's true. He never he doesn't, does. Like, especially about his prowess as a warrior or magician. He um, is one of the only people in this entire narrative to admit he was wrong and apologize and change his behavior. That's right. I, I mean, That's he right. is not, he does not follow this, I guess, archetype is a little bit too broad, but the, the character traits of these great heroes and kings at all. And yet he's very honored and considered wise. And he doesn't lose his wealth even when Rostam dies. And he's just such a fascinating character. And I don't really have an answer here. It but he, does, was, he does lose his son. He though, does. Which means that his, lim- his line will right. And they are, I mean, basically wiped out. Uh, and that's that, what it says. That's what right. it says, that, that his, this son, Shag- Shagad, mm-hmm. will, will be the end of your lineage. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a big deal. To have, the, to have your line end and no more to be yeah. born in your name. Because, you know, this idea of name and reputation mm-hmm. is so linked with, like, the most important thing you can have is your reputation yeah. or your honor. So that name. And so to lose that is one of the great mm-hmm. cosmological defeats. Yeah. And I'm interested going forward. I assume that we're not actually going to hear anything more about Zal for the rest that's, um, I'm interested in I mean, that as well. we're moving on to a new dynasty. A completely um, right. new dynasty. So we have and this the one huge, with the historical yeah, roots, this chasm, right? right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even the chasm happens in part because there's this alien invader. So we mm-hmm. have Alexander coming yeah. from the West. And so that creates this chasm between this huge part of the book mm-hmm. and now into the historical. Yeah. So I kind of hope we don't hear about him anymore because I'm. Sh- it would probably be just an aside, like when we found out Sam. Oh, by the way, Sam died. Yeah. Um. Because I like to imagine that he doesn't die. He's already eight hundred at least. So maybe he yeah. and Rudaba are gonna like go off with the magical bird, the Samor. And it, the Samor. Yeah, that's how I would pronounce it. And live maybe, happily. It, well, ever, if not it, happily, well, but at least it, peacefully right, ever after. Yeah, peacefully with their magic on a mountaintop somewhere. They're well, gonna go into the west <laughs> or up the mountain, up like the mountain. like like Kay Cosmo right. does. Yeah. yeah, that's my hope yeah. too. Do you have any other? We're we're 
You can yeah. join us reading the Shanama. You can actually enter at any episode because they are linked stories. And especially now with the after the death of Rostam, mm-hmm. as we enter a new phase, if you would like to join us, we're using the Dick Davis translation of the Shanama by Abdul Kasim Ferdowsi, published by Penguin. Penguin. And every Friday, or almost every Friday, we post our reactions on imakeupworlds.com, which is my blog. Anything Thank else? Thank you. I'm, I think I'm good. This has been yeah. like the great thing linking this year. So 2016, the year of the Shanama. That's right. So <laughs> join us, and thank you for listening. And thanks to our lovely and patient sound engineer, Renee of Lady Business. And thank you. Fangirl Happy Hour, <laughs> who is recording this for us and sitting patiently while we mm-hmm. babble about this work.